because of and, and because if they don't, it's only going to get worse. They're going to double down on everything they did this cycle. It will get significantly worse if Democrats do not take these seats. And here's your warning from Luke Boggs. In response What's to the, the warning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> going to get significantly worse. <laughs> yeah, another, here's your warning. another doom and gloom pre- uh, you know, pre- uh, prediction from me, so... Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and we are back together with the full gang. Uh, Today I am joined by Luke Boggs. Welcome, Luke. Welcome to me. Welcome to you. And uh, we are also joined by Megan Payne. Welcome, Megan. Hey, thanks for having us. Um, So on this week's show, we are going to talk about uh, President Trump's decision to fire Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, and in his place, install a confidant who may put at risk the findings in the Mueller investigation. Uh, Matthew Whitaker, Sessions' former chief of staff, is the new attorney general. Um, So we're going to talk about his appointment and his impact on that Mueller investigation going forward. And then for our second topic this week, we're going to check in on the governor's race and the uh, 7th District Congressional race. We are recording on Monday night, and as of Monday night, neither of these races have been called by any media outlets, and the Abrams campaign is currently issuing uh, several lawsuits on different fronts about problems in the voting system. And Carolyn Bordeaux also has a lawsuit that she is putting out there. So the Democrats are united on trying to make sure every vote is counted. And Republicans are tossing out claims that Abrams is trying to steal the election with a bunch of liberal lawyers. Um, so we will talk about where those races stand Uh, But first, let's start with some news this week. And I know, uh, Megan and Luke, you guys both brought a news item this week. Um, So Luke, can you tell us a little bit about what is going on in Athens as they try to get their vote certified and wrap this process up? Yeah, so as you all know, I was working on the Jonathan Wallace uh, campaign for State House District 1119. And so I, I pre, I've watched the results in Athens pretty intimately because uh, much of his district is in Athens and uh, a Coney. And one of the things that we were really hoping to have happen is that the uh, Athens uh, Clark County Board of Elections would do some sort of audit or just review of their procedures and how everything went uh, for the election just because of, um, you know, just some of the oddities that we saw. And uh, we learned uh, about a day or so after the election that they had decided not to do an audit of the election. Uh, This is something that they uh, have the authority to do uh, when they want to, but are not required to do so. And so I was informed uh, today by uh, Commissioner-elect Tim Denson that he and Melissa Link and I think a couple of the other commissioners uh, were interested in having the Board of Elections uh, re-canvas the results and basically just check over everything and make sure it was uh, all right. Um, that meeting is ongoing, so we do not know if um, that effort has been successful or what the Clark County Board of Elections is going to do. Uh, but I suspect we we will know by the time this recording comes out and we'll put a link uh, to any news articles that could uh, answer answer that for us. But uh, in general, I think this is a good thing and something I'm happy to see um, the commissioner supporting because 
there are a lot of concerns about this election. And I think taking some extra steps to validate that every vote was counted and that there were, you know, were no ballots missing or no people that unjustly got denied is the ideal uh, outcome. And just even if nothing was done wrong and everything was done right and the Board of Elections uh, feels like that they didn't, this was not necessary, I think it would be good just for people to have faith in the system uh, for us to just check everything. Um, yeah, so we will talk in our uh, second topic this week about some of the things that this uh, canvassing operation might accomplish. Uh, Democrats are trying to work through issues related to provisional ballots and making sure everybody's vote counts. Um, so for now, we will leave that there. And uh, Megan, I know you have some news about the Women's March on Washington. Uh, what did you find this week? The Women's March on Washington uh, recently came under fire for perceived support of Louis Farrakhan, who is a leader um, related to Nation of Islam and a few other organizations. Um, he's seen as anti-Semitic and anti-LGBT. And so they come under – Women's March comes under fire because Tamika Mallory, one of the co-presidents of the Women's March, attended a speech – by Farrakhan, in which he said, quote, the powerful Jews are my enemy, unquote. And he also mentioned her specifically during that speech. Um, he also frequently speaks ill of LGBT people. So it gets a little bit dicey, especially since Mallory also frequently posts about how great Farrakhan is on her social media. So this really kind of evolved when Alyssa Milano, who spoke actually at an Atlanta March for Our Lives event attended by Stacey Abrams, um, which was a women's march event. She stated that she wouldn't speak at any more women's march events until they denounce Farrakhan. And she has been joined in that by Deborah Messing, who is a Jewish actor who is also known for the LGBT TV show uh, Will and Grace. So Women's March, in response to this, posted a statement on social media that expressed that they didn't support Farrakhan's statements, but the response was kind of tepid. It didn't denounce Farrakhan himself, and it actually tried to blame Republicans for trying to divide the left in the efforts of the left. And I know that this gets – it hits pretty close to home for a few people affiliated with the podcast, and, and I'm definitely one of them. My first big political event – after the Trump election was the Women's March on Washington in Washington, D.C. in uh, January 2017. So it kind of calls into question whether I and others will continue to support Women's March on Washington or whether we will go another way. Women's March has has faced controversies before, uh, mainly related to intersectionality. And this is just a further issue related to that, especially when it comes to the Jewish and LGBT communities. Yeah, I think uh, for groups on the left, uh, broadly beyond this individual circumstance, they are um, struggling a little bit with how to live out their values fully, I think. And I, I don't know that that, I mean, I don't think that's unique to groups on the left, but I think it's probably growing pains for groups that are expanding, trying to to preach good values and and making sure that people involved in these groups are, are actually practicing what they preach. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if this impacts their influence in democratic politics at all. You know, this election that just concluded is going to send over a hundred women to the U S house of representatives for the first time. It's a record. 
um, and women's groups are uh, increasingly playing important roles in organizing people, getting them out to vote, getting them involved in their local politics. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how they uh, try to live up to their values. For sure. And I know that kind of all of us have a bit of a deadline coming up since there is another Women's March on Washington scheduled this coming January. And so for those of us who are trying to decide if we want to go or not, you know, we need to find lodging and all that good stuff, transportation. So I'm I'm really torn and I'm actually leaning toward not participating, at least until I can figure out what the group is actually going to do and say if they're going to take a hard stance. All right. So with that, let's move on to our first topic this week. Um, so last week, we mentioned this on the show in our news at the top, uh, but didn't get a chance to dive into it. Last week, President Trump requested the resignation of Attorney General Jeff Sessions and replaced him with Matthew Whitaker, Sessions' former chief of staff and an outspoken critic of the Mueller investigation. Democrats were quick to cry foul about this move, uh, with some alleging that his appointment was not legal and others worried about whether or not he would use his powers as attorney general to shut down the investigation or impede it in any way. Luke, let's uh, start with you. What is your reaction to Sessions being fired by the president or at least resigning at the president's request? And what's the thing at the top of your mind about what Sessions leaving the attorney general post will mean? Well, first off, I'm not surprised that this happened. This is something that was heavily rumored. And uh, just from reading the Bob Woodward book, I imagine Trump had wanted to fire Jeff Sessions significantly earlier. And everyone kept telling him that he had to wait until the midterms were over. And then on Wednesday, he said, the midterms are over. I'm firing Jeff Sessions. And no one had a good argument after that for it. So I think that's probably why he's gone. And that's why the timing was as such. As far as Sessions being gone, uh, if you told people in uh, January of 2016 there would be marches in New York City uh, (laughs) protesting the firing of Jeff Sessions as Attorney General, I think people would have uh, gagged in their mouths a little bit, but that's pretty much what happened, totally. Um, What what this means is we're entering into unknown and dangerous territory for the president because, uh, as I've heard it called before, we might be uh, witnessing a slow motion Saturday night massacre where uh, Trump is firing everyone in his way of trying to fire the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller. We had reached a sort of stalemate uh, with the special counsel's office in that Rod Rosenstein, who uh, was in charge of the investigation due to Jeff Sessions recusing himself, pretty much was pretty clear he had no intention of firing Robert Mueller. But now, due to Sessions uh, being fired and uh, Whitaker taking over, he is now in charge of the investigation. And... The reason why the future of the special counsel's investigation is somewhat questioned now is that Whitaker has suggested ways to get rid of the special counsel through uh, attrition rather than openly firing him, uh, taking such methods as preventing them from uh, indicting individuals, cutting their budget significantly, uh, reducing the scope of their investigation, and sort of follow a death by a thousand cuts strategy. So on that front, I think that's going to be the biggest change. Everywhere else, Jeff Sessions was not a model uh, citizen or a model attorney general, and he supported many policies that uh, I am strongly against and I imagine many listeners are against, and he was one of the biggest proponents of continuing the war on drugs and preventing criminal justice reform, and as far as I know, Whitaker is not going to be an improvement on any of those fronts either. 
all of this just seems so crazy to me, what you just outlined, Luke. But also the thing that was really striking was a quote that I read in an NBC article, which states, Whitaker appears to be the first person named acting attorney general who was not already serving in a Senate-confirmed position, which leads me to wonder if it's even legal or okay to go ahead and appoint Whitaker. I'm sure that's a question that's on a lot of people's minds. Yeah, I actually don't know the answer to that question. Um I'm trying to rack my brain if there's been any uh, cabinet level appointments uh, to you know someone who has not been confirmed by the Senate, and I cannot think of one. That does not mean there hasn't been one, but it means my uh, somewhat limited knowledge of American history is uh, is failing me at this moment. Um, so there is an op-ed in the New York Times uh, written by two lawyers. One of the lawyers just happens to be Kelly and Conway's husband, uh, George Conway, who has been a vocal critic of the Trump administration. Um, and they outlined the argument basically like this, that the attorney general is a principal officer in the government, meaning that they meaning that they report directly to the president and they don't report to anybody in between them and the president. And their argument is that uh, the Constitution requires that principal officers must be confirmed by the Senate. And since Matthew Whitaker has not been confirmed by the Senate to something else, that the I think the line of argument is here is that you have to be confirmed to something by the Senate so that the Senate has had some opportunity to give their advice and consent power. Since he has not, since he was not in a Senate confirmable position when he was Sessions Chief of Staff, his elevation to that post is not constitutional. And and so and then so that is the core of an argument that Democrats could make in the Senate. They could try to sue the Trump administration to say you violated our rights to advise and consent by just directly appointing this nominee. But I think that that's a, a legal argument that's not entirely clear. Uh, because Trump is saying that Whitaker is appointed on an interim basis. And there's another law about uh, vacancies that I think allows him to serve for a period of 200 something days. And so if he is replaced by somebody who is Senate confirmed in that time period, uh, then maybe his appointment would not be illegal. But the thing that's important about what these two lawyers, including George Conway, raise is that if it turns out his appointment is not legal, anything he does as attorney general would not be sort of a valid constitutionally recognized action. And the obvious thing that he may do here is sort of impede the Mueller investigation, squashing it either through its funding or through changing the scope of its investigation or uh, potentially trying to take the report that Mueller comes up with at the end that he is required to deliver to the attorney general and keep that report from ever seeing the light of day. Now, obviously, depending on the timing of the end of the Mueller investigation, he could do these things in his interim period, get out and have Trump get somebody Senate confirmed into that spot. And then there's going to be a lot of debate over whether or not what he did was legal. But do you guys think related to the Mueller investigation that is he possibly showing up too late to actually do anything about this? Or uh, do you guys think that he may be a real threat to us ever finding out what Mueller has been doing since he was appointed as a special counsel? 
Well, the thing that you bring up about the report coming out and never seeing light of day is interesting because my initial thought when I saw this was, yeah, yeah, he's too late. Mueller's saying that he's, or at least Mueller's not saying anything, which is kind of amazing. But what we're hearing is that this investigation should be wrapping up relatively soon. But if it's in these 200 days and even if what he does is legally questionable and all that, it still seriously gums up the works, you know, because who knows once someone else is appointed how long it would take to see the light of day if it would ever because of when it the report was released and all that good stuff. So that was kind of an angle that I hadn't really thought about until, you know, I kind of started investigating some of this, um, the, the items that you said about how things can happen during this interim period in which would occur is acting attorney general. Uh, facts are stubborn things. I, I I think Whitaker won't have much ability to uh, stop information from coming out on the Mueller team. They have seemed to have acted very deliberately, and it's been no secret that this might happen. That Jeff Sessions would be fired, and someone against their investigation would get uh, would take his place. I would be shocked if they do not have a plan B. A, or a break, you know, break glass in case of emergency plan that if Trump tries to do anything to the investigation or Whitaker tries to do anything to the investigation that they would, uh, you know, you ex- execute a different plan to ensure that uh, the investigation continues or that the important findings that they have come out. The, the thing that is important to remember here is just how... You know, it's really hard to like look back at Watergate or look back at Iran-Contra or any of these other big scandals and see it through the view of how people saw it as it was happening. You know, the only reason that we found out about Nixon taping everything in the White House because someone offhandedly mentioned it. You know, it wasn't it wasn't this big thing that like months and months of investigation found. It's literally one guy was getting you know was testifying and just like offhandedly, oh yeah, we tape things. Uh, and that, that's how people found that out. And, you know, the, the, one of the most famous quotes from Watergate is what did the president know and when did he know it? And most people remember that as a shining moment from a Republican, uh, trying to hold Nixon to account, but it was actually the opposite. He was trying to point out that, uh, it's quite likely that Nixon didn't know anything about Watergate and that he was completely innocent. And so I, I I think, Watching this as it happens, it seems like we're never going to get answers and that uh, the folks who are trying to obfuscate the truth are going to get away with it. But I, I am quite skeptical of their ability to do that. And I think any any delay that they have is just that it's delay and that whatever Robert Mueller is uh, trying to get out there will get out there. So the thing I would add, Luke, to to bringing up Watergate, I think it's actually perfect to bring Watergate into this right now, is um, two veterans of the Watergate era also wrote a piece in response to Matthew Whitaker being elevated, saying that there is a sort of break glass and emergency option for Robert Mueller. And that is actually based on what they did in Watergate, uh, which was to write up a report from the special, it was the special prosecutor then, it's special counsel now, Uh, to write up a report detailing all of the facts that the investigation had found with no analysis, no conclusions, no recommendations whatsoever, um, to just write up a fact, 
effect pattern for uh, public release and then to give that directly to an investigatory committee in Congress. Um, so this report, this roadmap was recently declassified by an order of a federal court. And so these authors of that report are arguing that that is now legal precedent, that although Mueller is required by statute to deliver a report to the attorney general, and this is the exchange where people think that then the attorney general takes the port, takes the report, squashes it, and nobody ever sees it. They are not prohibited from also delivering this what's called a roadmap, uh, but it's basically the fact pattern to an investigatory committee in Congress, and that then Congress, once they have that, they can do whatever they want with it. And that ultimately, probably what you're going to see as a result of this is if Mueller holds by a Department of Justice opinion that the president cannot be indicted, that he would then just release a report based on his findings and leave it to the political system to deal with Trump and with the fallout. And releasing this fact pattern would be no different. The facts would be out there. They would be, we would know that they come from the Mueller investigation. So we would have that to back up its credibility. And then it would be a political process that deals with the fallout for Trump. So it does seem like there are some options there for these findings to come out instead of Trump being able to just sweep them under the rug. That's definitely true. The biggest thing that uh, I would be worried about that um, Whitaker would be able to really have an effect on is deciding who gets indicted or not, because Congress, while they can subpoena people, they can hold hearings, they can do a lot of things, and it's really important and good for the country that we have one house controlled by the Democrats so that they can form, you know, actually do Congress's function and do what the founders intended Congress to do and hold the executive branch accountable and make sure that uh, they're not getting away with things they shouldn't uh, in any situation, but especially this one. Uh, it will be, it, it is a problem that if the attorney general doesn't want someone indicted, then it's probably, it can't happen. And uh, as we've already seen from several successful indictments from the Mueller team, even if Donald Trump is completely in, innocent, there's likely more crimes that were committed and more people that should be indicted under uh, what we know currently. And so I would be uh, pretty concerned about the ability for a uh, Whitaker to prevent people from being indicted because that's something Congress can't do. So is this a reckless move by President Trump? I mean, he is doing this right after Democrats have taken the U.S. House. Um, they are going to have investigation powers to hold the president to account in any number of areas, but this seems to be one of the more prominent. Why do you think Trump is making this move now? I think it's pretty obvious. Donald Trump is a gangster thug politician, and he wants a gangster thug attorney general who will not recuse himself and who will fight for Donald Trump until he dies. He wants to, he wants someone who will die on every hill for him. And uh, Jeff Sessions had proven himself not doing that. I mean, Donald Trump repeatedly said that Jeff Sessions, the worst thing he ever did was recuse himself. And he constantly was harassing him. And it was constantly reported that the rumors were that Jeff Sessions was going to be fired after the midterms. Well, guess what? Wednesday was after the midterms. So he fired him. <laughs> like, it's just, it's like, this is the most predictable Donald Trump thing I've, I've seen um, in, in my opinion. And I, I think this is the most unsurprising thing this that, that has happened in this administration. I am genuinely surprised that he'd not fire Jeff Sessions at 7.01 p.m. 
Eastern time <laughs> right on after Tuesday. The polls closed. Yeah. I just wonder. So, I mean, do you think that just does he think that this confrontational approach is the best way for him to maintain his seat in the White House? I mean, there was also another report separate from these issues that came out where Trump had previously said that he had no involvement with payments to Stormy Daniels or other women that he had affairs with that he tried to pay off to not say anything during the election. And there's reporting now corroborating that not only did he know about these payments, but he played a really active role in overseeing that they were done. So I mean, he clearly lied about his involvement in that. I know that's not a surprise to anybody. But like, I don't is this like a sign of guilt that maybe he knows he's guilty. And so the only way he's going to get through this is to to fight his ass off or? Well, I think a lot of his actions can be taken as a sign of guilt. I mean, really, if he is innocent, the best thing for him would be to let this investigation go through and finish and prove that he's innocent. So, yeah, I think any a lot of what he does are indirect. A lot of these things are indirect admissions of guilt. Otherwise, why would he care? It doesn't matter. It's Donald Trump. He will he will fight you on if the sky is orange or not, or if it's green. If 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 someone he doesn't like says that the sky is blue, he will he will take the other side because he wants to fight and he wants to win. And for him, abdicating even clearly obvious falsehoods is is a loss. And so he he's gonna fight no matter what. And you know that's that's the situation we're in. And so he picked Whitaker because he's someone who agrees with him that the special counsel investigation is stupid and doesn't matter and should go away. And that's what Whitaker thinks. Yeah, I mean, Whitaker's route into being a part of this administration was Trump seeing him on TV and and liking how he fought and liking how he did not have a high opinion of the Mueller investigation. Um, I guess for Trump, the parallel that he's looking at is the reaction to the Monica Lewinsky affair in with Clinton in the 90s that ultimately Clinton ended up Clinton and his party ended up gaining seats in the 1998 midterms because the country largely liked Bill Clinton thought that Republicans had overreacted and that Clinton was a victim of a really a victim of a witch hunt what Donald Trump likes to think he's a part (laughs) of Um, but this seems like a completely different issue this is not an extramarital affair. This is a question of whether or not Trump's campaign colluded with Russia to win the White House. And Trump is not a popular president. He maintains his popularity among his base, but he doesn't have a lot of room to grow beyond that. So I just don't think that this is a good bet for Trump. But maybe it feels like maybe to him, it feels like it's the only bet that he can make. Well, and we know that he is going to and will continue to play the pity card. You know, kind of what you were talking about, Clinton, I think some of that is perceived, some of the reaction is perceived to be pity. Like, okay, well, Clinton had this extramarital affair, and that really sucks and isn't great for the leader of the United States to have something happen. But ultimately, it had nothing to do with his politics. He just had a shitty personal life that got made public. Whereas Trump is wanting us to feel sorry for him, but everything that he's being investigated for or, or, you know, they're they're trying to investigate has everything to do with him getting his seat as a president. So what do we think of Sessions' legacy? He was attorney general for a little bit under two years since the beginning of the administration. 
Um, he's had a lot of influence in the area of immigration and some skepticism of federal oversight of local law enforcement efforts made under the Obama administration to deal with police brutality and things of that nature. Luke, what do you think of Sessions' legacy as AG? I think his legacy is pretty typical of what we would expect from this brand of Republicanism. And in that sense, it's very unremarkable. The remarkable thing about Jeff Sessions' legacy is going to be the fact that out of all of the cabinet members, I think it's pretty safe to argue that Jeff Sessions was the uh, best deliverer for Donald Trump and getting him policy goals, getting his policy goals and getting him policy accomplishments that Donald Trump wanted and advocated for heavily on the uh, campaign trail. And yet he got fired. Uh, he's one of the few people that got fired without having a major controversy related with corruption or insane incompetence. And so what this really shows me is that the number one thing that Donald Trump cares about is your loyalty to Donald Trump and what you and if you will protect him 100% of the time and never equivocate and will always be in his corner and throw yourself in front of every bus that gets close to Donald Trump. And Jeff Sessions would not do that. Well, especially Trump especially believes that about the AG. He's basically said that he believes the AG's job is to protect the president. And to attack his enemies. Right. And Jeff Sessions wouldn't do that. So he's obviously trying to find someone who will do that. Well, Jeff Sessions, you are fired, and we will not miss you. Goodbye, uh, Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions. We may You're not fired. You may not be happy about your replacement, though. So let's move on to our second topic of the week. Oh, real quick. Before, before we leave Jeff Sessions, does anyone expect him to run against Doug Jones in 2020? Hmm. I'm going to take an out on that question because I'm not entirely sure Doug Jones runs for re-election. I would be shocked if he doesn't. I think, I mean, I think he may leave to get a different job. If he was the vice presidential nominee, I think that's the route that he needs to be exploring is to either get ready to be appointed to the next administration, assuming it's a Democratic administration, or he needs to try to ask to be the VP. Well, my question wasn't if he wins again, it's if, if he runs again. Is I think, though, if he does any of those things, he doesn't run. Or if he is still on the ballot, it may not actually be a meaningful campaign. I mean, I think in, in deep red Alabama, unless he's running against Roy Moore, Doug <laughs> Jones is not going to win re-election. I certainly think he does not win re-election against Jeff Sessions. I think uh, everybody in Alabama will be happy to have him back. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Jeff Sessions does run for that seat, uh, but I've I, I'm putting firmly my my money down that Doug Jones is running for re-election. I will just sit back and watch that. I think you guys have adequately argued both sides of that. I don't have anything to add. So let's move on to our second topic for the week. Um, so on Monday night, the elections for governor and the Georgia 7 congressional district are not officially over yet. The Abrams campaign is challenging the final count of this vote, saying that there are votes that are uncounted, that are legal, eligible votes that should be counted. And she and the state Democratic Party and Carolyn Bordeaux, the Democrat in the 7th District, have filed lawsuits questioning various aspects of the voting 
system, including how provisional ballots are treated, how mail-in ballots are treated, and whether or not they're accepted, if there's any missing information on those uh, mail-in absentee forms. And they had one success in Doherty County of having absentee ballots accepted beyond the deadline because Doherty County is down in southwest Georgia and was impacted by the hurricane earlier this fall. Brian Kemp has been very critical of Stacey Abrams for not conceding in this race. His spokesman, Ryan Mahoney, has said that Abrams' refusal to concede is a disgrace to democracy. Um, so, so clearly it's pretty heated here as this race comes to a close. Let's start with this from Abrams' perspective. Luke, do you think that Abrams is wrong to not concede in this race and try to litigate every angle of this election as much as she can on the way out the door? Like any good pundit, I'm going to hear your question and answer the one I want to answer. Uh, I think that Abrams is doing what any candidate in an election as close as this one is would do and should do, which is make sure that the final result is the actual result. And she's using a lot of tools uh, in her tool belt to ensure that that happens. Um, I I think this is fairly typical. If you look through American history, there are plenty of instances where close elections, one's closer than this one and one less close than this one, were litigating in this way. So while it seems a little abnormal, I mean, this happened in Massachusetts when Al Franken first got elected. Of course, there's a 2000 recount. There's plenty of elections all the way back in the 1930s that had an incredible amount of litigation about it. So on that front, it's not that weird. Additionally... Abrams is asking for something that I think is pretty legitimate and pretty normal, which is just actually count all the votes and figure out what the final uh, tabulation is. I think on the conceding question, it would kind of be odd to concede while you are also uh, trying to figure out what the you know final uh, vote count is. I think it's bizarre if Kemp is so assured that he has won this election that they are being so adamant about her needing to concede. I I think, honestly, on both sides right now, there's just a lot of political posturing. I think the uh, Kemp side is a lot less defendable. Uh, I'm obviously biased in that, but uh, as far as how I would be handling this, if I was the governor-elect, I would be like, yeah, sure, let's count all the votes. I won anyway, and I don't care. Count them. And I'm surprised that that's not the tone that they have taken uh, in this race and that they are playing scared. And it's it's very typical, uh, too, because it's the exact same playbook that's uh, going down in Florida right now as well, where they are having recounts. And Rick Scott, who's running for uh, Senate there, is is playing just as scared, if not more so scared, than, than Brian Kemp is. Along the lines of what you were saying, Luke, I am also kind of baffled by the idea that if he won, let's just count all the votes. It's also really infuriating to me that it's not a foregone conclusion that we're going to go ahead and count all the votes and let everyone's voice be heard. That's part of the systemic issue of why people are saying, oh, my voice doesn't count. It's because if they have to vote provisionally or via absentee, their votes don't get counted unless it seems to matter. But judging how this election has gone, it makes me wonder how often those votes should really matter and how often they say, you, you know, I, I, up until this point, I haven't paid enough attention or known where to look 
to see how many votes were cast absentee or provisionally versus what the margin is for winning to know if those votes could potentially swing things. And I just kind of wonder how many times our leadership has been able to get away with not actually counting those votes, even if they would have changed an outcome. Yeah, and that, that's a really important thing uh, as well. And I think this is just an example of how Trump has infected our politics, because just as you know, we were hitting on with why is Trump behaving the way he is and why is he firing Jeff Sessions right now, the, the Republican Party, especially in Brian Kemp and folks like Rick Scott and uh, DeSantis down in Florida, they have just adopted his take no prisoners, always fight no matter what, and be as hostile and aggressive as you possibly can. And I, I really doubt that if Donald Trump was not our president right now and we were on Earth 2 or 3 and Marco Rubio or Hillary Clinton was our president, that this race would be ending in this like you know really, really aggressive, really bigger way. I don't. I would not see that as as how the tone of the race would have gone down. But uh, another theory I've heard that I think I buy into, and I know this is one of the other things we want to talk about, is that Brian Kemp is making these messages and appealing to the Republican base in this way uh, to keep people fired up for the Secretary of State and the Public Service Commissioner runoff to make sure that Republican voters stay tuned in and don't uh, get you know, uh, don't overeat and get sleepy in Thanksgiving and forget to go vote on December 4th. Do you think that's what he's doing? Because I don't, there's no mention of the Secretary of State's runoff in any of this. I just don't know. Did, did Brett Kavanaugh mention the Brian Kemp governor's race in Georgia? Did it mention the vote election in Florida? It doesn't have to be connected directly to the election. It's and It would be less effective if it was. It's a dog whistle for Democrats are trying to cheat. Democrats are bad. Democrats are doing all these terrible things, and Democrats must be stopped. And then when you get the message, hey, Democrats are trying to win an election— it's a lot easier to convince people uh, that Democrats are bad and need to be stopped if you've been saying that for a month and a half. I could kind of see people getting the... I mean, these are coming out to Kemp's email list about saying that Abrams and a bunch of liberal lawyers are trying to steal the election. I can just imagine uh, readers of that email list getting angry and screaming racist things at their computer and then not <laughs> connecting that the Secretary of State's race is still... Yeah, but how, how many how many people on that email list are Democrats? It's mostly no, going it's his to be base. his supporters, his followers. Yeah. Um, real quick, I wanted to get back to something, Megan, you were talking about. So... This is the closest governor's race since uh, 1966. In that race, the Republican actually won a plurality in that race, uh, but the nobody won a majority. And in the 60s, the legislature was responsible for picking the governor when nobody won a majority. And so they ended up picking the Democrat in that race. And I think one of Georgia's last segregationist governors, Lester Maddox, was picked in that. Most of the races ever since haven't been close enough, I think, for any of these issues, if they are not on a systemic level, to swing those races. I mean, even when Purdue, even when Sonny Purdue beat Roy Barnes and, and sort of completed the Republican takeover, uh, that race, he still ended up winning by five points. The other the other close race in this was Zell Miller's reelection. Uh, where he only won by three points. So I don't know, you know, we haven't seen 
evidence one way or the other that these are systemic issues. Uh, but I think that that doesn't mean that you can dismiss the problems that people are having, whether it's they send in an absentee ballot and they can't verify that it was counted and was received, whether they have a signature mismatch where they sign their absentee ballot, but it was rejected for a signature or an incorrect date in the birth date line. But for every one of these people that had this problem, their constitutional right to vote was taken from them. Yes. And so I think the important thing about the legal process that we're going through right now is it's going to air all of the problems related to voting and the legislature should do something about it. And so I would encourage the Abrams campaign, the Bordeaux campaign, the Georgia Democrats to litigate this everywhere from Judge Judy to the U.S. Supreme Court, because this is the only way that we are going to put these problems on the record, create a public record for it, and then demand that our legislature and our governor solve these problems for future elections. Because what's what we've been doing up to this point has not worked. Exactly. Well, and just to be abundantly clear, it's the conspiracy theorist in me that is wondering about the other elections and whether or not those votes that didn't get counted would have changed things. I'm aware that, you know, most elections are not this close. But I think, Kyle, what you said is more to the point. Everyone has a constitutional right to vote. Everyone has the constitutional right for their voice to be heard. And it just goes back to what I was saying about people having this opinion that like their voice doesn't matter or their vote doesn't count. Well, we're reinforcing that by act- literally not counting votes. And so, yeah, I think what you said is spot on. Constitutional right. Everyone gets to vote. Therefore, everyone's vote should be counted. Well, and that's why it's been so frustrating that the Kemp campaign has been so glib about this, because if they feel like they have won this race and that the votes are not there, they could actually just posture and say this and look like they care about every last person's right to vote, because it will not cost them anything. And so that's why I think it's so confusing to me why they have taken such a sharp tone. In the press conference on Thursday that Kemp had with Governor Deal in the governor's office, where deal basically introduced Brian Kemp as the governor elect. One of the things that Kemp said was that he wanted to lead on replacing the state's voting machines. This was an issue we talked about in the last legislative session, and one that the legislature did not act on. And a federal judge has been very critical of the legislature and the governor, basically all of the state's political leaders for not solving this problem. But it sets him up as being the guy who wants to replace Georgia's voting machines for the first time in about two decades is also the guy who was questioning whether or not his opponent was trying to steal the race with lawyers. I don't understand how if you're Kemp and you want to lead on this issue of changing election systems, that you don't see that you are shooting yourself in the foot by looking like the guy who wants to screw with the elections to make sure that they wind up in his favor. And so I think it's, I don't understand strategically why they're being so sharp. I think it's a bad idea. Yeah. So Kyle, like the, th- the thing that you're missing is Brian Kemp's entire career in elective office. Because like every opportunity, Brian Kemp has said, hello, Republicans. And by Republicans, I mean the only Americans. I am here to stop Democrats from voting. 
And whenever he's on the trail, he said he repeatedly had been like, all these Democrats are voting. Stacey Abrams is so good at getting Democrats to voting, uh, uh, to vote. And that's that's why you need to elect me to stop these Democrats from voting because Democrats voting is bad. Like that, like he has not hidden his goals in office and how he views the office. His office's goals are to pass Republican policies and to pass policies that hurt Democrats voting. Like that, that has been his career. That has been the things that he says to fire up his base and to, you know, warn people about the dangers of Democrats voting. And so that's just what he's doing now. Yet again, he's just telling people Democrats are trying to vote and that is bad. And I'm Brian Kemp. And as your next governor, I will prevent Democrats from voting. Well, and this is just, this just goes to support why a lot of states have gone, maybe not a lot. I need, I need to look at the statistics, but many states have gone to a nonpartisan secretary of state office. I would honestly love for us to do that in Georgia. I don't think it should be one party's responsibility to have to make sure that all Georgians are able to vote fairly. That's just asking for for it not to be fair on one side or the other, depending on who's in that office. The other thing that's interesting about Kemp's strategy and all this has been the fact that he has been repeatedly asked to resign from Secretary of State, and he didn't do it until after the election came into question. And this is the thing that makes my head explode. People who wanted him to resign would have wanted him to resign before this process went to into full effect, not in the middle of it. And so now he has resigned. Uh, it was last Thursday, a couple of days after the election that his resignation went into effect. And he has, uh, and Governor Deal has appointed a woman named Robin Crittenden to become the Secretary of State. And she was previously running a different executive agency. She was previously the Commissioner for the Department of Human Services, and she has been a close ally of Governor Deal and Sandra Deal working on their older adults cabinet to combat hunger among senior citizens. I don't know that I haven't seen anyone critical about her previous efforts or, or whether or not she is ready to take this on. But I think it's extremely unfair to throw her into this immediately in the aftermath of an election, one that is so closely contested, and one where people are looking so skeptically at the role of the Secretary of State. Brian Kemp is now no longer answering for what the Secretary of State's office has done throughout this election process. That includes no longer answering for his call for an investigation into Democrats over an alleged hack of the voter registration system. Um, and now all of this is landing on Crittenden. And she's, you know, writing, she wrote a letter at the direction of the Board of Elections to give guidance to counties on how they count absentee ballots. She's sort of thrown into this in the middle of the fourth quarter. And I just think it's incredibly unfair to her and impossible to expect that she should be responsible for how the office conducted itself during this election or responsible for landing this plane safely since we are already at the 11th hour and this thing is about to be over. Exactly. Well, it's completely unfair to all Georgians. She hasn't been involved in, you know, and Unless she has been involved in this and we just don't know about it and Kemp was keeping it a secret, which makes me have a lot of other thoughts about this whole thing. But assuming, just for the sake of this conversation, that 
she literally has been uninvolved until this exact moment. There is so much information that she is going to have to learn and digest and act on in such a short amount of time that there's no way that she can do the job as successfully as someone else could have if they had been brought on months ago. Well, the thing that I find most frustrating about this is all of the issues in this election, I think, to me, raise a make it necessary that we have a conversation about access to the polls and administrative barriers that keep people from accessing the polls. But there is not a political constituency in Georgia that has any power that is going to raise that conversation because and that's Republicans why she elected ones... John Barrow, the next secretary of state. <laughs> well, that's actually what I want to get into. And so I have a two part question for you, Luke. One, do you think that if John Barrow was to become the next secretary of state, he could have any influence over this discussion? And do you think that he should be doing anything like launching investigations or looking back at how this all played out if he was to to take that office in the runoff? Absolutely. I think he should, you know, launch investigations because even if everything was done above board, it would be a good thing to have a investigation and a report from that investigation, which could be released to the public and, uh, you know, let people know what went wrong and what went right. Uh, additionally, having any elective office is a platform. Obviously, being the governor of a state is a larger platform than being a state representative, but the Secretary of State is a very big platform. It's a big microphone, and if John Barrow is uh, a Democrat Secretary of State, he's made it pretty clear that he intends to run that office in a very nonpartisan and a very fair and straightforward manner, and I think we would be pretty assured to have no BS out of that office, and he would just be uh, trying to increase access to the polls and make things efficient and have a voice towards picking a smarter, fairer system for uh, our next governor and making, you know, a suggestion from the Secretary of State's office. Um, you know, unfortunately, he will not have a vote in either chamber and he won't be able to force the issue. But there's plenty of power that the Secretary of State has, assuming that the legislature doesn't vote to take it away. Um, and I'm I am sure that John Barrow would be able to do a lot more and we have a much cleaner, uh, much less controversial election in 2020 and 2022 while he is uh, Secretary of State. So, yeah, I think uh, people probably underestimate the positive benefit having a secretary of state that isn't going to rig the game uh, would have for for Georgia. Megan, do you think that Democrats in the legislature should come up with a voting rights agenda and try to position themselves as advocates for voting rights versus Republicans who are not? So yes and no. I do think that if no one is doing it, someone should. And especially with Georgia having a partisan office for secretary of state, and assuming that that's going to go to a Republican, um, although hopefully it doesn't, you know, I do think it's the Dems' responsibility to try to balance that out. However, what I would really like to see is this to be handled completely in a nonpartisan manner. I'd like to see, I like to see Democrats and Republicans get together and publish something. I know that's really um, pie in the sky of me, but I don't believe the Secretary of State. Or voting rights should be partisan. I believe they should be completely nonpartisan and that everyone, no matter what their party, should have equal rights to vote. Yeah, I think they ought to uh, come up with a really aggressive voting rights agenda and 
claim that Republicans don't support these things and, and Republicans can either prove them wrong and pass those bills into law and, and fix issues with our voting system, or they can stand up and be the party that doesn't believe everybody should have the right to vote. Yeah, that would definitely work. I just wish people would collaborate and author something like that together. I feel like that would really do a lot to enforce that idea that it's bipartisan. We haven't talked really at all about Carolyn Bordeaux and the uncalled race in the Georgia 7th. Do y'all think that Woodall is ultimately going to prevail in this contest? The spread currently is 901 votes. Woodall leading by 901 votes. I am holding out hope that Bordeaux is going to win this one. It's so close. Yeah, I I think uh, Woodall is probably going back to D.C. Um, I don't know how many votes are left to be counted. Um, I'm, you know, happy that both Borgo and Abrams are pursuing a count every vote agenda because I think that's important, even if it doesn't change the results for us to do that and that to be the expectation. Um, That being said, I don't see us uh, pulling that one out. So uh, Bordeaux's numbers, at least the gap that she needs to close to uh, try to come out on top in this race look better than the one Stacey Abrams has right now. Um, at a press conference today, she talked about about 900 absentee ballots and 2,300 provisional ballots that she says Gwinnett has not counted for largely trivial reasons. Um, AJC reported this out from her press conference today. And so these ballots are coming from Gwinnett County. So they're coming from the more democratic leaning portion of that district. But these would have to be, I think, like largely Bordeaux votes um, in a pretty significant way to help push her over the top. And those provisionals, um, you know, this has been central to this fight, those provisionals would have to be found to be allowable over the objection of missing birth dates, mismatched signatures. Um, if if the ballot, there, there's some issue that I'm not entirely clear on, on absentee ballots going from one county to another, and the Abrams campaign trying to argue that those ballots should be counted, even though they're not originating or ending up in the right county. So they have a lawsuit uh, related to that also. So I don't know. The numbers look better for her, but I previously – Florida is a state that's had a lot of recounts, and I was reading about their recount process today. And they said that those races are not likely to change uh, their outcome versus who is winning now, which is both the Republicans and those Senate and governor's races, because recounts just don't flip that many votes. Um, so you would have to find some sort of systemic error. And I think that's the sort of same sort of thing you'd have to find here that Gwinnett County systemically ignored provisional ballots that should count. Uh, because if it's just a few here and there that are based on a judgment call by a county election official, those numbers may not add up for, for Bordeaux. Not to mention the fact the percentage you have to win would have to be pretty significant to overcome the deficit. I'm just, I'm still, that's the one election, uh, I mean, the the one race that I am hanging on to from this election. I just, I am stubbornly holding out hope for that one. And you guys can tell me I'm wrong the next podcast, but I, you can tell me I'm wrong now. I'm going to hold out hope for that one. I think in any event, though, 
for Republicans, the damage has been done. These races in the sixth and the seventh drove big gains for House Democrats in, in the Georgia legislature and really put Georgia on the map as a potentially competitive 2020 state, given Democratic strength in the suburbs and given that Republicans are looking to rural Georgia to keep them afloat. And it's the suburban electorate that's growing and becoming more diverse, and it's the rural electorate that is not getting bigger. So I think regardless of whether Bordeaux ultimately wins, that district is going to be on the Democratic shortlist to flip in 2020. And um, the the work that has been done to build an infrastructure to get out votes in the 6th and the 7th is probably going to put Georgia on people's watch lists in that presidential race. So Luke, there is one other runoff, and that is uh, one of the public service commissioner races. So uh, can you tell us about who is in that runoff and uh, where you think that race is going to go? Yeah, so we do have another runoff election that's already confirmed, and that is uh, one of the public service commissioner races. We have uh, the incumbent Chuck Egan uh, being challenged by the Democrat Lindy Miller. Um, I wasn't really surprised that this race went to a runoff. Lindy Miller uh, raised a significant amount of money, over a million dollars, and uh, was a really strong candidate. She was one of the folks I was the most surprised. really impressed with uh, just seeing her on the trail and seeing what was coming out of her campaign. Um, both Barrow and uh, Lindy Miller benefited from having stronger showings from libertarian candidates. Uh, really, I, I think part of the reason the governor's race is not in a runoff right now is because of just how astronomically bad of a candidate Ted Metz was. Uh, and if he had been a stronger candidate, I think that race would also be in a runoff. Uh, so, Really, I think both for uh, Barrow and Miller, this is a really good opportunity for Democrats to pick up two uh, very important statewide positions that have a lot of power. Our voters need to take this opportunity to express their discontent with how this election was run and the results that they saw. And if Republicans are not as fired up uh, and Democrats remain as fired up as they've been and use this as an opportunity to express how pissed off they are, I think this is going to be a really, really good change and will hold the Republicans accountable for how they ran this election. And so I'm hoping that uh, Democrats take advantage of that. Because of, and, and because if they don't, it's only going to get worse. They're going to double down on everything they did this cycle. It will get significantly worse if Democrats do not take these seats. And here's your warning from Luke Boggs. So I think that's a good place to leave it for now. Um, so this week that you're listening to us, there is a special session starting in the legislature to address hurricane relief. Uh, but that looks like it's going to be short and sweet and be over with pretty soon. Um, So we are going to sign off for a little bit, probably will not talk to you until after Thanksgiving. Uh, So we want to wish the best to you and all of your families and hope you have a restful holiday season. Uh, But we will be back sporadically through the end of the year uh, to cover any news that pops up. And then you will see us back full time, ready for the start of the legislative session in January. And hopefully by then we hope we will have figured out who our next governor is going to be. Uh, but for Surprise, that, it's are... Ted Metz. Oh, God. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, with that, we are going to leave that there. Uh, so Megan Payne, thanks as always. Thanks for having me and happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And Luke, thank you for your wonderful insights that I listened to 100% of.
Of course. And I always listen to you, Kyle. All right, guys. We will talk to y'all later. Ted Metz 2022. <laughs> <laughs> Boo. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.